certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, court heard from the police officer who went digging through old evidence boxes and found a fingerprint that would change the course of WA history. Welcome to week 17 of Claremont in Conversation. Good to have you with us. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with Tim Clark and forensic expert Brendan Chapman. Tim, I think this was really the nitty-gritty that everyone's been waiting to hear, that fingerprint discovery that eventually led to Bradley Edwards' arrest. Yeah, that's right, Nat. It was it was very interesting. It was... Uh, the- the sort of the first real detail we've had about the end of the investigation. We've obviously heard reams and reams of evidence about the uh, investigation dating back all the way to '96, but this was basically um, uh, the one of the officers, the modern day current um, cold case officers, talking about those three frantic weeks in December 2016, which. As he described today, it began with a with a late afternoon phone call from Path West, and basically ended three weeks later with an early morning arrest of um, of Mr. Edwards. And um, Sergeant Beck was able to fill in the gaps in between that, and and, and basically walked us through um, what had happened in those three weeks that had led to the arrest, which which left Perth and 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 beyond stunned really yeah that's right and and just you know um looking at this evidence today it really just looks like good old-fashioned police work um that uh, that he has talked everyone through today yeah it was it was as we've said macro is as is and was a just such a mammoth mammoth investigation spanning so long um but these final few pieces of the jigsaw um that Sergeant Beck was very um, centrally involved in, um, basically brought it all together and finally got them a name. Um, As we've said, these are all still allegations, but uh, the fact that this huge investigation was brought to such a a dramatic climax, I suppose, with this arrest um, back in December 2016. And and today we heard really for the first time the, uh, the... in, inside word of of what happened there um, to to get it to that point. So how did he get to that point where he went, um, you know, to I think it was Belmont Police Station and and started rifling through these old boxes? How did he get to that point that he was looking through these boxes? So uh, we long time listeners right might remember Scott Egan, who was a uh, very high up in Path West. He, get, he gave extensive evidence during the DNA portion of the trial. And uh, Sergeant Beck, Stuart Beck, today described it was his phone call, uh, Mr. Egan's phone call to him um, on December the 1st, 2016, that really triggered all this. Um, what had happened was the cold case homicide squad were looking at old cases. They had pulled this box from 2000. And uh, uh, from 1988, I should say, um, but it had taken um, several months for them to get round to testing it. When they did test it, it came back as this um, monumental 
DNA match. It matched the Karakata rape, and it also matched the DNA from Kira Glennon's fingernails that they they'd been sitting on for um, nearly nearly seven years. So uh, it was Scott Egan who rang Sergeant Beck on that day um, in 2016 to say we've got a match. Um, Sergeant Beck said it was he was actually he'd actually finished for the day um, when this when this phone call came in, um, and it but it didn't take him much longer than the following morning to go to Pathwest to talk to Mr. Egan about what he'd found, um, and then uh, the investigation ramped up. Um, to a thousand miles an hour straight away. And one of those investigative branches was Mr. Beck uh, tracking out to a, a, a place in Perth called Belmont where they had a police storage unit and he pulled three boxes which contained, as he described it, hundreds of fingerprint lifters. So the, the actual fingerprint lifts from various crimes, hundreds of crimes in fact, dating 1987, 1988, and 1989. And with this um, link to this kimono um, that they had from this break-in in Huntingdale, they obviously knew roughly what they were looking for. And there it was, were some fingerprint lifts taken from a an attempted break-in at Huntingdale just a few days before this kimono had been discarded during this really frightening attack on this young girl in her bedroom. And so armed with those fingerprint lifters, Sergeant Beck then said he went to um, his the fingerprint bureau, um, handed them over, asked them to do what they needed to do, which was run them through their local database and also also run them through the fingerprint database and a couple of days after that um, request was put in on December the 16th they finally got a name which was Bradley Robert Edwards um, and as we described before that name popped up because Mr Edwards had been fingerprinted when he was arrested for his attack on the woman at Hollywood Hospital in 1990. What a um, a surprise he must have got when he got that email to say that it had thrown up this name as a result of a 1990 incident. Yeah, well, um, one of my media colleagues who was sat in the room with me today made a very good point. Actually, it would be very, it would have been very nice to have had the question, "How did that make you feel?" put yes. to Sergeant Beck today, <laughs> but because we're in the court room scenario, that doesn't really uh, that that doesn't really um, feed into what Justice Hall needs to worry about but uh, I'm I'm certainly if I ever get the chance and I hope I, I really hope I do well, that's the first question I'm going to ask him is a how did you feel when you got that phone call on the 1st of December B how did you feel when you got that email on the 16th of December giving you a name and then how did you feel for the next week because that's that's when he said that the, the chain of events, that's Everything that that was Bradley Robert Edwards was then um, opened up, looked into in minute detail for um, any um, clue as to whether this might be the man that been searching for all these years. The initial thing, obviously, was Hollywood Hospital, and Sergeant Beck said that in itself um, gave them real interest because of the nature of that attack i.e. on a lone, vulnerable woman in public, um, seemingly randomly out of nowhere. 
they obviously had the um the details surrounding Karakata. They obviously had the details surrounding the, the, the breaking at Huntingdale. Again, both young, vulnerable women attacked in very similar ways from behind um, while they were basically defenceless. Yeah. Um, and so then the, the next week was, was spent finding out anything and everything they could about Mr. Edwards. I mean, it, without a doubt, this was the crucial turning point in this investigation. And on the other hand, though, it's almost, I don't know, for want of a better word, demoralising to think that the pieces of this puzzle, the kimono, the Huntingdale fingerprint and this Hollywood attack, they've been sitting there for 20 years and you can't help but wonder how many other cases are out there which are, are just waiting for someone to pull out an old box and take a second look. I mean, Brendan, this must be something that you sometimes wonder about yourself, knowing how much evidence is, is sitting in boxes um, around the world. Yeah, absolutely. There actually used to be, um, particularly in other countries, a, a big focus on solving only really serious crimes like homicides and sex assaults before we started to see a lot of data that um, pointed us to evidence that, well, a lot of these people that are progressing onto these really serious crimes like homicides and sex assaults start somewhere else um, and they might start with more petty offences. So if we actually go about and, and put the energy and efforts like, as, a, as a policing tool into solving uh, more of those minor offences, which might be the, the stealing underwear off a clothesline or a, a minor break-in into where you know nothing was actually stolen, um, we can actually get these people the theory is you can get these people on things like the DNA and fingerprint databases early on in their criminal career so that we can actually better solve the, or, or prevent these more serious crimes. And a lot of, a lot of jurisdictions uh, are now going back over a lot of those historic volume or what we call volume crime samples or more, um, I suppose, lesser crimes, property crime and things like that, in order to solve some of the more um, serious offences that have gone unsolved for, for decades. That's right. It's that one little missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle that can, um, you know, actually finish the whole, the whole puzzle eventually. So, Tim, Sergeant Beck was then tasked with um, finding a DNA sample uh, from Bradley Edwards, and this is this covert operation that we've heard so much about. Yeah, that's right, Nat. So um, he was actually, um, it, this was a, a multi-headed operation now in, in, this, in this week, obviously. Um, and what he actually said was he, because it, this operation, um, the, this ultimate operation was undercover, um, he wasn't actually... Um, Ofe with the details of it, but he certainly was on the morning of the 21st of December because an under a covert operative for the West Australian Police walked into his office um, with uh, the top half of a Sprite bottle in a plastic bag, which um, had been um, uh, gleaned um, and seized um, the previous evening. Um, we know from the opening um, address many months ago from Miss Barbara Gallo that it was actually um, taken during a um, trip to the cinema that Mr Edwards um, had made um, 
I don't think Sergeant Beck was too worried about what he, what film he'd seen, but he certainly was worried about what might be on that bottle. Um, and so he um, whisked it over, I think I can use that term, to Path West that morning as soon as he had it in his hands, basically. And he said he was actually given permission to bypass the usual mode that the police do um, in, in these cases where it has to go to a... a holding um, lab in Midland first before it goes to Path West. But um, he made the needed phone calls and said, uh, I think we need it a bit more urgently than that. And so that, that was bypassed. They took it straight to Path West. Um, they got it at quarter past nine that morning. And it was, uh, it would have been a very long day for all the detectives, including Sergeant Beck, because it wasn't until six o'clock that evening that they got the results back from that sprite bottle um and they and it was a uh, what he was told was it was a definite match for the huntingdale um kimono it was a definite match for the caracata rape um and it was a match that could not be ruled out for the kira glennon fingernail exhibit um and so that was at 6 p.m on the 21st of december and then on at about 7 35 on the 22nd of december that following morning um, the TRG, which are the tactical response group, the armed um, team um, of the WA police, um, were um, not so politely knocking on Mr. Edwards' door um, at his uh, at his home in Kewdale. And um, he was um, taken into custody pretty much on the spot. And there were multiple searches held simultaneously as well, weren't there? Yeah, so that, um, that obviously sparked again another huge response because in the interim police had been finding out finding out all they could about mr edwards as i said and they, they included four addresses that they were significantly interested in um one was the address that they were at or that the the bulk of the police were at um in in Kewdale, which is where mr edwards lived there was an address in huntingdale where he um had lived um, um pr- prior to that there was um, the uh, and there was another address um, that he that he had lived in um, uh, in Fountain Way, which was also in Huntingdale. So that was his basically his childhood home, and then his first home, um, his first married home, and then there was also a, an address south of Perth where his parents were living, and pretty much simultaneously, um, uh, police went to all three of those. Um, all four of those um, and began very intensive um, operations, forensic searches of those properties, um, looking for any possible clue that could link Mr. Edwards with either Kira Glennon, Jane Rimmer or Cyrus Beers. And Sergeant Beck was the forensic coordinator of these searches. Did he describe in any detail about what was going on during this process, um, how they were searching the homes, what kind of methods they were using? Yeah. Um, it, well, in, in particular, um, at the uh, uh, the Fountain Way uh, property, that was actually the main search of that was done um, a little bit later um, in, the, in the new year in um in January of 2017, um, this is the, the the home that that they were really interested in because um, th- this was uh, where Mr. Edwards had lived for a long, long time. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, Sergeant Beck said when they got to that home, um, they removed the people that were living there currently, um, which would have been a huge shock to them, I'm sure. Um, and then furniture was removed, carpets were lifted up, um, the back garden was um, probed um, to see if there was any ground had been disturbed, um, and the shed um, at the back of the property, the slab was lifted there and also um, searched. Um, so it wasn't said in um, explicit terms, but we know that um, Sarah Spears's body has never been recovered, mm. and those. Um, um, I think it's fair to say you could fill in the blanks to um, see what um, officers might have been looking for, yeah. um, particularly with those with those underground searches. Brendan, from your personal experience, what's it like being on a scene during those huge moments when a home is being combed for clues? Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, I suppose a mixture of um, feelings, I guess. When it's uh, initially, it's actually quite exciting because um, I think as, as, I, as I tell a lot of my students you when you invite friends over to your house or, or um, when someone or when you go to someone's house you're kind of expecting a visitor so you prepare for it um, whereas when the police come to look at your house for investigating a scene in, in a lot of cases it's it's kind of like this this moment of where time has paused and we're walking straight into the home so um it's really quite exciting and, and also interesting to see like when you're walking into this and um, like imaginary pause of someone's life um and then of course in a situation where where you're potentially looking for um any buried evidence or or, or signs of a grave or things like that it's you, you realize the scope and the scale of something like what most West Australian backyards are. They're actually incredibly large. Um, and when you're only provided with, for instance, information with regards to the entire backyard, it's actually quite a daunting task to identify an area which would be as small as, say, um, a clandestine grave. So it's really quite difficult um, to identify uh, those areas with the tools that we have um, and, and Tim did mention tools like probing mm. um, and in a lot of cases we we only find those um, sort of sites because we have an informant or, or a witness that can kind of almost point us to a direct spot in the ground so it kind of starts off exciting but then it's also quite daunting um, the task ahead of, of you know we've got this entire backyard and we need to find a hole in, or what was a hole in the ground potentially years and years ago um, that is, you know, only about the size of, um, you know, a, a person. Yeah. I mean, it must be so laborious. And with the metal probes, do you sometimes have a grid pattern where you're, you know, breaking the backyard up into smaller portions and just trying to make sure you're hitting, you know, every square metre? Yeah, so everything we do in terms of a search, whether it's with probes or, or visual or any sort of a search, is done systematically. So um, we will have some sort of a, a zigzagging or snaking sort of pattern so that we can categorically say we've searched every area. Um, there are a lot of other things that can help 
guide us to areas um, with regards to how vegetation behaves and things like that. Um, but the probes themselves, yeah, we certainly um, are trying to make sure that, that is, systematic, is systematic and we can then say, you know, well, we have categorically searched the entire backyard. But it's not to say that just because we can't identify something with a probe that it's not there. Um, the counter to that is just because like a probe may identify a huge number of areas that have been disturbed because all we're looking for is an indication that there has been a disturbance in the soil um, and what the probes are specifically looking for are where um, the compaction level of the soil is different. So over time, the ground beneath us and the soil becomes quite firm and compacted. If I was to go and dig a hole and then put the soil back in the hole, um, I, I, I don't generally put it back with that same level of compaction. So that's what we're looking for with these, uh, with these probes, which are really nothing more technical than a, a sharp pointed spike. We're, we're feeling for the difference in, in firmness of, of what, how the soil is. Um, so it actually, yeah, it, it's, it's daunting and it's systematic and we have to do it systematically. And we might end up with 20 areas of interest in, in a backyard that we then need to further investigate. Yeah. I think the other people thing that people find intriguing is, you know, when it comes to lifting of concrete slabs and, and what uh, leads to a decision to do that or to not to do that. Yeah, and that's often intelligence-led. So if, for instance, we know that um, a shed was put up, you know, a year after an event um, and we've got benefit, the benefit now of things like Google Images and all of these satellite imagery where we can look back over time and see that, oh, well, a year after a particular offence, the shed went up. So that's the sort of intelligence we might use to, to identify areas like that and make that decision. Um, it's very rarely that we would go to a backyard and just just dig things up or just remove things like slabs or permanent structures unless we have some sort of intelligence to guide that. Right. Tim, Sergeant, Beck's, uh, Sergeant Beck had another important role later and that was also to find out, um, find clothing from an era to help identify these where these sources of unidentified fibres had come from and this was another thing that took him back in time. Yeah. So Sergeant Beck's um, job title, if I can put it that way, was Forensic Manager. So he was in charge of exhibits for macro. Um he said at the start of his evidence that there's 15,000 physical exhibits um, connected to these um, three cases and the allied cases that go with them. Um, but what we also found was even up until um, the third quarter of last year, 2019, macro investigators were still gathering exhibits. And these were in particular to do with this fibre evidence. Um Again, long-time listeners might remember that the, this trial was due to start a little bit earlier than it did, and that delay that, that was eventually granted by Justice Hall was because of this fibre evidence and this new evidence that um, police officers were able to gather. And that in, specifically was um, these old pieces of Telstra workwear that dated back to the era that... Mr. Edwards was working um, 
which was a long time, but in particular 1996 and 1997. And so uh, Sergeant Beck described how that they managed through some witnesses that we've already heard from, actually, the, the, the long-time Telstra workers, through them, they were able to um, get their hands on these um, 96, 97-era workwear, um, pants and shorts that Mr. Edwards would have worn at the time. And the, the reason for that was to give them control samples or comparative samples to these blue fibres that they had had in the system and had been found on Jane and Kira, um, or identified on them in a report from the Chem Centre in 2014, but they had no source for them. Um, but with Mr. Edwards's arrest and all the history of him that I was talking about, they were then able to try and pinpoint, well, if it is him, where are these fibres come from? And it was in the middle of last year that these this work where was um, found and seized and photographed and controlled samples taken off. There was also, um, we've heard suggestions already from the defence, well, what are s some other workers that might wear blue fabric well police officers obviously and and how many police officers are at the scenes of jane and kira's discovery dozens and dozens so what we also heard today was that they um wanted investigators obviously wanted to try and rule out that these fibers might have come from police uniforms and so they actually went to or were directed towards the WA Police Historical Society, <laughs> who actually had um, 96 and 97 era um, overalls that the forensic officers who would be who would have been at the scenes of both Jane and Kira's um, discovery sites, the, the actual uniforms and coveralls they would have worn. And so, um, lo and behold, Sergeant Beck went to the Historical Society and within minutes of him making his request, um, some of these coveralls, blue, both light blue and dark blue, had been turned up um, by the president of the Historical Society and handed over. So we've said it before, um, literally no stone yeah. has been left unturned, and, and that even stretched to um the wa police historical society doing their bit for the macro investigation incredible in a in a bid to you know exclude those other items uh was uh, sergeant beck cross-examined no no he wasn't uh Matt, we heard a lot from him we saw a lot of photographs of these uh these shorts and pants and overalls and 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 other exhibits um um including hairbrushes that had been seized after Kieran's, uh, Kira's disappearance before she was found. Um, but they, it was also it, none of the arrest um, uh, material, um, in, including the DNA sample from the, from the, um, the Sprite bottle and the, the, the further buckle swab that was taken from Mr. Edwards. None of that is um, challenged by the uh, defence. And the rest of it is, was pretty formulaic. Um, sort of tendering of evidence through photographs through Sergeant Beck. 
Yeah. Um, so no, no, none of none of his uh, none of his um, evidence was um, cross examined today. So um, which was which is interesting in itself, I suppose. A senior macro investigator, very high up in the organisation, um, gets to come to court and just um, tell his story and then um, and then um, go away again. So um, I, I'm sure that will will change as we get um, deeper into the actual. Um, uh, nuts and bolts of the fibre evidence and certainly the comparisons of these um, control fibres um, that were that were discovered late um, and these other fibres that were discovered um, uh, many, many years ago. Yeah, and you did hear from another witness today who really did dig down into details of some fibre evidence. Yeah, um, so this was um, an officer that had been involved in the... Um, uh, examination of Mr. Edwards's car that we um, that we talked about last week, um, and we saw pictures of, um, and this really showed how um, detailed that examination was. Um, this is an officer, Daryl Kung, who said he was part of a team that spent eleven days pulling apart Mr. Edwards's old car. Um, and then taking, again, control fibre samples from the various fabrics um, uh, dotted around those car, that car, including seat backs, seat bolsters, boot carpet, um, cabin carpet. Um, and they very meticulously and methodically took out every seat and um, every seat cover and turned those seats upside down um, and got scrapings and debris and, 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 and in all... It took them um, 11 days um, to do all that. And that was, um, again, meticulously documented, photographed, logged and labelled. And, uh, and um, the Officer Kung was, was part of that team um, that was, was involved in that co-lab examination between Chem Centre, Path West and the police. Um, and as we've said, the... the, the it will become apparent that the most vital thing that was found in those 11 days were these blue fibres that were uh, had remained in the car, it would seem, for nearly 20 years um, until they were collected up by this uh, by the Chem Centre team um, and placed into yellow top containers because, again, the comparison between these blue fibres, the, Cal- the Telstra blue fibre shorts, and the fibres found on the girls um, will allegedly say um, that they were all um, one in the same um, source of these fibres. Brendan, 11 days to examine a car, is this a normal length of time or is is this the forensic team being extremely thorough? Oh, I, I'd probably say that's pretty thorough by any standards. But uh, <laughs> in saying that, you know, it's it's quite easy to take at least a couple of days to go over a vehicle um, because there's actually a huge number of pieces of evidence you can get from a vehicle Um, and then when you're also considering the fact that you've got this disassembly process going on with something like a a historic vehicle um, I can certainly see how that would how that you know would take that long because at the end of the day, if you're looking for evidence of a person being in a car that after a you know, significant amount of time, where we're talking you know, decades, um, I don't know how well most people clean their car, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure if there was a single hair, it could quite 
quite possibly persist, you know, down under things like the carpet or the seats or, or those areas where you don't really or, or aren't really accessible when you kind of go over this general vacuum or clean of your car. So um, it's, a, it's a long time, but absolutely necessary, I, I, I believe. I mean, it's extraordinary that those fibres are still there after all of that time and you wonder how long fibres would be on your own person if you've travelled in someone's car, be it in your hair or on your clothes. And Tim, we we heard um, in previous evidence that Jane had had her hair done on the day she had disappeared, that morning before she disappeared, which is actually quite interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it it, it could be very significant because um, the argument will be, um, well, she, she never came into contact with either um, a, a Holden Commodore um, or anyone who worked for Telstra or a combination of, 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 of either of those things. And allied to that, that she had had her hair washed, cut um, uh, on the morning um, that, she, that she disappeared, um, and then these fibres somehow were in her hair um, when when it was examined later. Um, and so the, the prosecution argument will obviously be, well, there is no other way that, 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 that they could have got there um, other than having been in that vehicle and in the presence of someone um, with um, with access to those that Telstra workwear. So um, it's just another one of those little quirks of timing, quirks of fate um, that that play into the argument um, that, that the prosecution will make um, ultimately in a few weeks of what are the chances? What, what are the chances of, of this fibre somehow getting into Jane's hair after it had been cut in that window of time um, if it wasn't um, in, the, in, the, in the presence of that car? Absolutely. Very interesting. Um, Sergeant Beck was a very interesting witness today. Do you have any idea who will be on the stand tomorrow? Uh, I don't, actually. We weren't given much of a steer, but we know we are now getting to the, the, to the pointy end of this, of this fibre section. Um, so there are, um, as I've mentioned last week, there are a lot of read-in um, statements to come um, this week. So the, these are witnesses that have um, have been um, given a leave pass, if I can put it that way, about have coming into court in person. So we'll hear from a few of those. We think a few of those will be um, to do with the fibre examination. And after today, we can surmise that some of those might be also to do with the police investigation. Um, and then... Uh, there'll be um, more um, chem centre um, examination um, after the weekend um, that that we do know because Ms Barbara Gallo has said that she wants to get to the, the real crux of the fibre of uh, evidence after um, the, the short Easter break that we're going to have. Um, uh, so the rest of the week will be taken up with um, leading into that. Um, main event, if I can put it that way. And are there any exhibits from today that you saw that we will be able to look at online? Yes. Um, so there are actually um, a couple of quite interesting photographs of the Chem Centre um, scientists in action um, looking at the car um, and looking at, in particular, 
the um, the the rail under the driver's seat, which is was said to contain those blue fibres. Um, so Justice Hall um, kindly um, allowed us access to a couple of those. So you can actually see the level of um, personal protective equipment that those guys were wearing um, when this examination was done, um, and. It, the, the very close scrutiny that they're giving um, to these minute um, pieces of debris that um, in any other car would just look like um, something that you could hoover up. But um, in this case, um, they, they were certainly um, a, a lot more interested in them than um, just putting them in the bin. So, uh, so yeah, if you go on to the west.com.au um, uh, Probably at the time that the podcast goes to air, you should be able to um, to see those photographs and um, and also the photographs of the car um, as it looked um, when um, when they seized it um, on that day in 2016. Very interesting to see. Terrific. Thank you, Tim, and thank you both for your time today. We'll be back tomorrow with Alison Fan. Join us then for day 69 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Flashpoint, returning to Seven on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.